If Reality Check Radio enriches your day in life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and the dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Martin Selner is an Austrian patriotic activist and author who has written about influencing power from the right. He's an advocate for remigration, a controversial policy being talked about in some European countries aimed at encouraging the recent waves of migrants from the Middle East and North Africa to return to their homelands. Many listeners will be familiar with Lauren Southern, who was prevented from speaking in Auckland many years ago. Much earlier than that, she was banned from the United Kingdom, along with several of her friends, including Brittany and Martin, who have since gotten married and started a family. Martin is the founder of the Identitarian Movement in Austria, and he remains an influential figure in this movement. Uh, Hello, Martin. Good morning and welcome to the show. Hello, good morning, and thank you very much for inviting me. So first of all, what is an Identitarian Movement? And why did you start one in Austria and encourage and, and help others around Europe to do the same? Uh, the Identitarian Movement actually was founded in France. And I would say it was filling a gap of patriotic activist youth movement. So a lot of people call it uh, a patriotic Greenpeace because we also try to adapt this style of activism. Banner drops, chartering ships, making symbolic actions, street theater also actions that you were using humor in a way. And all of this did not really exist, I would say, in the right wing. And so GI really wanted to create a new style of activism. And also GI was the first. Um, so GI is the, is the short version. For generation, generation Identity. Identity. Yeah. Generation Identity, exactly. It was the first new right activist group in Europe that was explicitly following this idea of new right identitarianism which in short is basically the idea that every people has its culture and its identity. There are no superior cultures or bad cultures, but you should be able to love your own culture, preserve your own culture, but then respect all the others. So that's basically the the grounding principle of the movement and of generation identity. A few weeks ago, there was some controversy in the news that made international headlines as well about remigration, which the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, a German party, and also the National Rally in France that was led by Marianne Le Pen. They were supposed to have a meeting about this uh, this concept, and it caused a lot of protests. And I believe you're almost being banned from traveling to Germany as well. So tell us a little bit about what this is and why it's caused so much controversy. Yeah, I mean, I've been banned from the UK, the United States and Canada withdrew my visa. And now even Germany doesn't want me to enter anymore because they're so reluctant to talk about these ideas. In fact, remigration is our answer to a failed migration policy of the past decades. It doesn't only mean to bring illegals home who have no right to stay in the country, but also to secure a border, to create projects in the countries, the origin countries of migration flows to help those people to have a perspective there, but also to invert famous push and pull factors. So at the moment, you only have a lot of pull factors that draw people from all across the globe to Europe. And then you have a lot of push factors in the regions that drove them away from their homelands. And we want to invert those factors to create incentives for people to stay home, but also to uh, shut down the incentives for illegals for poor people to immigrate to Europe just to benefit from our social system. That's the main idea. And with a policy for remigration, 
It consists of many factors, for example, fighting political Islam um, here, stopping this kind of spending policy that you can easily exploit. We hope that we can change the tides and turn around the stream of migration so that over time, within the next 5, 15, 20 years, this Islamization of Europe and this uh, loss of identity that you're experiencing can be turned around. That's the basic idea behind remigration. And it's debated more and more in European politics because more and more people see how the current migration policy has failed. And is there a lot of interest in Austria itself? Are there political parties who are interested in this idea or is it still, is it considered a forbidden subject? It's a very good question because this really changed in the past years. And I think that's also the reason why we had this big upheaval. In the past years, the AFD, the Freedom Party in Austria, and in France, especially the party of Eric Zemmour, made remigration the main issue. It was uh, debated uh, six years ago only in our activist circles as an avant-garde idea and concept. And in the past years, we had campaigns of the Freedom Party youth with the term remigration. The AFT party is using the, the slogan all the time. And Eric Zemmour, the identitarian candidate in France, who was very popular for a while during the presidential elections even, demanded a ministry of remigration. So the idea and the term is very broadly discussed. Obviously, everybody has a different understanding, how much, how many, which time frame. So there's a big debate about it going on even in the right wing. But I would say it's a core concept of the European new right at the moment. That's great news to hear from you. Is there a concern, people say, that remigration, are you going to be rounding people up and deporting them and sending them home and people don't want to go back there's a lot of fear generated in the media about this idea. So could you explain in a little bit more detail as to what it might actually involve and what it wouldn't involve? Yeah, it was a, a big media campaign. They created a straw man and basically they want to compare remigration to a policy of chasing people away, violence, in fact, ethnic cleansing. That's the demon and the straw man that they're creating. But that's not at all the case. Everything in terms of remigration policy is obviously totally legal and has to be based on laws. So an actual repatriation for people is only possible if they're not no citizens and have no right to stay in the country. And for all other cases, what we are trying to do is to create a different environment, which doesn't make it likely and also doesn't make it sustainable. For example, parallel societies, but also criminal networks that are establishing themselves right now in Europe or radical Muslims to stay here on the long term. An example for a policy that would fit into our concept of remigration was when in Austria, the wheel, the niqab was banned. You know, this, this wheel that only mm -hmm. shows your eyes. And just after this ban was enacted by the Conservative Party, a lot of radical Muslims just left Austria because they said, okay, I cannot live my faith here, my fundamentalistic faith as I want. And now in Germany, for example, they have been cutting cash money for asylum seekers. They only get a little card with which they can buy groceries. It has already led to many of those people voluntarily leaving the country. So we think if we put in place a completely different set of rules and systems, following the example of Denmark, who have their own ghetto laws, uh, or the example of Sweden, that made a new law that for non-citizens for foreigners who earn less than about 2,300 euros a month that they eventually have to leave the country. So if you set up a set of rules like this on the long term, you're going to experience that especially those immigrants who cannot assimilate, who are an economic burden to the state or even import criminality will gradually leave the state. And that's exactly what we're proposing. Obviously, there are also 
uh, migrants who are assimilating. Very often, they're even strong proponents of a policy of remigration themselves because they're also suffering from a population replacement. And everything else you hear about the term is obviously just fear-mongering of the migration lobby because you have political parties that are importing votes. You have the asylum industry that is making millions just by getting state money to take care of those illegal people. And then you even have big corporations who are profiting from cheap labor being imported. And all those people, they don't want to have an open debate about migration policy. And that's why they're fear-mongering. And that's why you hear those straw men about remigration. When I first heard about remigration being used in a modern context, I thought of Enoch Powell, who was a, a British politician, a conservative party politician, in, and I believe in the in the 60s or 70s, or so he was speaking about remigration in a sense and repatriation, and basically it resulted in him being kicked out of the Conservative Party. It was not something that was possible at all. It couldn't be talked about in any polite circles or even non-polite circles. It was completely banned from the public conversation. So what has really changed over the, in, in the, the decades since that now people are able to talk about this? I think people have just seen the reality that this huge social experiment of replacement migration didn't solve all demographic crises. It created a new crisis and new problems, social problems, social tensions, you know. And I think it's now so clear, so abundantly clear for everyone that packing and, and importing thousands of people from Arab and Muslim countries, especially mostly young men, and then just hoping that with a little bit of kumbaya and some social services, everything will work out that it has failed, that people are looking for a real new solution, a new idea. And that's where I think the idea of remigration is very revolutionary. And, you know, at the same time, those people who claim that it's completely normal that millions of people come illegally to Europe to say it's an outrageous idea, it's unthinkable, but also a lot of people will legally leave the continent again. So for them, migration is a one-way street. They think migration is great, humans love to migrate, and we need to uh, celebrate the new mobility, but only in one direction, only into Europe. And as soon as somebody has stepped the soil of Europe, he'll be there forever. And that's just a very strange concept, and a lot of people understand that this concept is wrong. And I also think, to be honest, that most people would have a better life in their homelands if you would create perspectives for them there. So I don't think that humans naturally want to leave their lands and naturally want to go to a completely foreign place. And I think that this, um, the concept of free migration in the end, in the long term, is also better for the immigration countries because there you have a huge crisis, you have a brain drain, and a lot of researchers have shown that this system of mass migration is also keeping poor countries poor. So in the end, I think on the long term, if you just change the thinking, change those tides of migration, everybody will profit. And I think that the time is now really ready for a debate about that. And I think especially the silent majority of European countries and maybe also other Western countries is very ready for that. And if you look at Trump, what he's proposing, then I really think that this will be a key concept for the coming century. You, you mentioned that the proponents of migration like to think that there shouldn't be any borders. Once you're in Europe, you should be able to be in Europe. But there seems to be some problems with some people who they don't like especially yourself, where they then say, anyone can come into Germany, but not Martin Selner. Martin Selner, he needs to stay in Austria. He can't cross the border into Germany. I think that's against the law, uh, against European law to do that. So what actually happened? Did they try to stop you? Could it even be done? 
they're trying to do it right now, you know. So at the moment, there's a trial going on. They want to withdraw my freedom of mobility, which is a basic right in the European Union. And I even tried to enter Germany a few weeks ago. It, I, I did a live stream. It was the most live stream event on Rumble Germany ever. It was very big in the media. The police stopped me at the border. They interrogated me. And for this time, they allowed me to enter because why? I said, I just want to go to a little town to have a coffee, you know, and, and eat a little cake, eat a cake. So I said, okay, that's for this time. It's okay. But it's an ongoing debate. And Nancy Faser, the Minister of Interior herself, said in a press conference that she uh, was for the German security. But at the same time, you have every day two gang rapes in Germany, mostly done by foreigners to German women. So apparently... They think that importing thousands of illegals that are not checked, you don't have know anything about them. That's okay. That's no issue, no problem. But they're afraid of an Austrian activist and patriot because they cannot deal with my ideas. I think they should be more open for new ideas and they should close the border for real security threats. I'm definitely not one of them, but let's see. This week on Friday, I will try to enter Germany again. I want to give a speech about a remigration at a patriotic youth center in Eastern Germany. And maybe this time we'll experience the first pushback on the German-Austrian border. Unfortunately, not against illegal migration or like uh, Islamic extremists from Afghanistan, but against an Austrian patriot. Mm. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We'll be following that on Friday. It will be probably maybe Friday evening or Saturday uh, morning, our time here in New Zealand. So... You just told us about the German government here, but also for many years you've been harassed by the police and the government of Austria. Is that over? Are you being left alone or are you still under all kinds of scrutiny and, and court cases and so on in your own country? Unfortunately, it is still going on. There are always, like I've always a few trials going on, mostly about hate speech. All of them in the end fail. So I've always been acquitted every time in front of court, but I think it's a war of attrition. You know, it's a strategy of lawfare. It always costs you energy and money. Then you have debanking. I've lost more than 77 bank accounts or they, they blocked me, wow. didn't grant me a bank account because of political reasons. And then I'm banned on pretty much every social media except for alt tech. So that's quite a heavy burden. And now with this anti-remigration campaign, I've been again on many magazine covers. I've been demonized in many big hit pieces in the media. So unfortunately, at the moment, they're really focusing on generation identity and on me as a person because they really want to kill the idea of remigration. And they hope with a big demonization wave and campaign, they can make everybody so afraid that nobody talks about this idea and term anymore. But fortunately, it backfired for now. The result of this campaign was that my book about remigration that will come out in March was Amazon bestseller number one in the category of books. So uh, it was a typical Streisand effect. Mm -hmm. uh, excellent. Yeah. Is it just in, in German or is, is, do you have English copies of your books as well? It's in German for now, but an English translation is planned. So I've been writing some books the past years, mostly about political strategy, metapolitics, because I really think conservatives need to learn how to lead the culture war because... Mm -hmm. That's where we are hopelessly underdeveloped compared to the left. And Remigration is my first uh, book about this political subject. But I hope eventually if it does well in, in German, I would be happy if it could be translated to English. 
And this yeah, harassment by the, the police and the government is a case of the process being the punishment. I think I've experienced something similar here in New Zealand, nowhere near the extent that you have, but had a similar issue where the, I was interviewed by the intelligence services, you know, saying the government has told us to investigate the right wing, you know, we need to go in mm. and talk to you. I even had the police raid my house and then, you know, with my family here and my wife mm-hmm. who had just given birth. And they had no evidence. I'd broken no laws. They were just hoping that I had done something wrong, uh, effectively. You know, and then you have to go and fight in the courts. And you know, it did really feel like they're trying to punish you. But the thing that at least keeps me going is knowing that you know, some people have to walk this path so that other people can follow us. It's always been like that. We are an avant-garde at the moment. I always say we are not radical. We're not too radical. We're just too early. <laughs> Very soon people <laughs> understand that we have been right from the beginning. And I really can feel you. I also had this experience and obviously they want to shun you. They want to scare you into apathy. It's always a, a psychological burden to experience something like that. And the biggest problem that I've seen is a lot of people who don't really closely follow anything when they see there's an act of repression against you, like a house raid, like an investigation, they think, okay, this person has done something wrong. So the act of repression becomes the reason for the punishment itself. That's that's a very negative effect, and it's exactly what they're aiming for. But the good thing is, and I think that's also why it's so important that with radio stations like yours, the more people zone out and log out from the mainstream legacy media, and the more people who inform themselves independently, the less powerful they get. And that's a trend that we've been experiencing en masse in Austria and Germany. The old media is losing power every day, and they're not getting it back. So I think the information... War is one of the most important. Yes, we have the media here in New Zealand complaining almost every week that they're losing money. Government needs to pass laws to help them. Otherwise, they're going to fall over and go extinct. And on the other hand, then, you know, we have independent media like Reality Check Radio. We're growing. We're doing really well. We've got mm-hmm. members signing up every day, donations coming in to keep us afloat. And it's wonderful to see. So if you have just tuned in to this show. We're interviewing Martin Sellner here, who's an Austrian patriotic activist and author. And we've just talked about the policy of remigration that he is supporting in Austria and in wider Europe. You can text us on 2057 or email your thoughts and questions to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And you know, for remigration, I also want to encourage all the listeners to really support this channel because I think it's very important that these channels survive And uh, I know exactly how it is personally, because we don't get any funding from the state. We only get house rates and attacks from the state. So we are, we are really crowdfunded everywhere. A very interesting example for remigration. It might also be interesting to your listeners because it's geographically quite close. I don't know if you heard about it is uh, the Indo-Fiji remigration. Did you ever hear about that? I have not heard about that before. No. So, you know, in the, on the Fiji islands, The, it was a colony of the UK and the UK imported Indish labor en masse. So thousands of kilometers, they imported Indish wage slaves, so to say, not real slaves, but really people were very poor and had to work there. They should just work there and then go home. But then they stayed there because it was cheaper to keep them there. And then you had chain migration and replacement births and migration. And from the late 1900s to the mid 20th century, those Indian citizens became a majority and made up more than 50% of the population there. And then they founded their own parties. And then they wanted to change the constitution and take away the right of the indigenous people of the Fiji island who had a special right to the country. 
Then you had a lot of like civil unrest and, and a time of demonstrations. And then you had an indigenous Indo-Fiji government again, and they started a policy of remigration, you know, with, with a lot of measures uh, to, to complex to go into detail right, right now, but it was no, no violence or anything involved there. Mm -hmm. And now after some decades, the indigenous Fijian population is the majority again and will become an absolute majority within this century. So that's an example where it actually worked. And it's very interesting. If you look at left-wing scholars writing about it, they say it's great because it was a mm -hmm. post-colonial struggle and the indigenous people kept the right to the land, you know? And I mean, when it's, when it's good there, why shouldn't uh, those ideas also work in different countries? Yeah. Yes, they talk about yeah, decolonization, decolonizing Fiji. Well, definitely something that I'm going to have a look at. On, on that similar subject here, we do have a native people in New Zealand here as well, the, the Maori. They are also very much concerned about preserving their culture and their heritage, um, but they are about 13, 15% of the population. How does a message, I guess, apply to them where over hundreds of years we've had two people develop here in New Zealand? We had a treaty that established you know, one government over what was effectively two groups of people, and there is and, and there has been basically some tension here. Do we become one people? Uh, do we have mm -hmm. uh, people of Maori and English descent? Do we have one future or do we allow uh, people to pursue their own cultural heritage independently, their own ethnic heritage independently within the same country? Is that the kind of situation you would be familiar with at all or is it not really something that you think you have ideas to apply to? There are some similarities in, in Europe because every Europe nation obviously has minorities, which we call historic minorities or organic minorities. For example, we have Slovenian minorities here and then there are German minorities in Hungary. And I think um, Hungary under Orban, which is very a model of conservatism, <laughs> I think they did it very well in the constitution. They said Hungary is the homeland of the Hungarian people, but also of historic and organic minorities. And Hungary guarantees their rights for their own identity and their language as well but within the context of the Hungarian statehood. So I think if you, if you have a clear contract, if you have a clear understanding, I think that's absolutely possible. It has been possible, but obviously there, are, there is also potential for tension. So I don't know the situation about New Zealand, but as an identitarian, I'm always for preserving cultures, preserving languages and identities, because I think that's the, the real treasure we have on earth. I think uh, young people like myself who have been following the work that you've been doing have very similar thoughts about how that should be the case in, in New Zealand as well, that we should be looking to allow the native people here to be able to preserve their own culture and heritage within the New Zealand context against what is basically a global liberalism that tries to make everybody the same. Everybody has to be the same. And that's something that we're actually fighting against for all people. All people should be able to determine their futures. I completely agree. It's, um, Alain Benoit called it the right to difference. And I think that the real reason behind this idea of global homogeneity, that's also where this term of global homo comes from, which is like popular in meme culture, because it's so fitting. This makes people controllable on a global scale, because if you have no roots and no identity and no, no national in-group, then you become atomized and at some point you are only controlled by the flows of money and information and you become a mass that's very very easy to control for supranational actors and i think that's that's the main reason why this idea is being pushed so much in mainstream media and against that i think the idea of an alliance of different identities and nations is possible so i'm not i'm not naive there will always be tensions always be issues among people obviously 
Uh, but I think if we understand as all nations and all people and identities, whether we are Austrian or we are Australian or uh, Maori, that <laughs> the system is fighting all of us and all of our identities, then we can also work together at some point. Now, we have a similar political situation, perhaps in, in Austria, I think you have a right-wing government of sorts. In New Zealand, we also have a new government that's fairly right-wing, at least by our standards. But are they not dealing seriously with the issues around immigration that you have, that, that you raise? And same thing here in New Zealand, we raise the issues around immigration. We had nearly 5% of the population arrive in the last 12 months here in New Zealand, 5% of the population. Where did uh, it come from? All over all, all over the world. So most of them will come from England, from India, from China, some returning from Australia. It's massive change that's currently being forced by the people and by us here at Asia into being a, a political issue. But the government is very reluctant to deal with this. And I think you have a similar problem in Austria as well, right? You have a, a right-wing government, but they're not really solving the problems. Well, the government in Austria is not really right-wing at the moment. It's a conservative party in a coalition with the Green Party, which is okay. the most left-wing party you can think of. Yeah. It's only about maintaining power and salaries, mm -hmm. this, this government. But I completely agree with your point. Right-wing governments in the parliaments without right-wing activism on the streets and in the media is powerless. And that's a main key point of my strategic criticism. And I, and I wrote um, a book about that that the right is failing and losing because they're not leading a culture war. They're only focusing on parliament, on short-term political victory with superficial issues. And they're not going into the universities. They're not going into theory. They're not going into the ideas. And they're especially not understanding how language is used as a tool to control them. And that's the reason why the Overton window has been shifting to the left gradually over the past decades even in spite of the smaller right-wing electoral victories. So we think that the real victories are being won in metapolitics, in the field of culture, ideology, language. And that's why you need activism and activist movements like Generation Identity. And I think that's where the right is lacking the most. Mm -hmm. And in New Zealand, very much we are, I think, behind any other Western nations in Europe and, and Australia and having a lot of that on the ground activism, but that is changing a little bit now. An, an interesting piece of advice then from you perhaps is how do you keep a movement clean? How do you keep a clean image on, especially on the controversial issues? How do you keep it focused on that one issue? How do you stop bad actors from subverting the movement? A very interesting point, because just right before we started the interview, I was reading a news article, and in Germany, it now came out, there are hundreds of agents, federal agents, flooding Telegram, Telegram groups, and they are allowed to commit hate crimes. So they have the, uh, the license by the mm -hmm. state to commit hate crimes in Germany to instigate other people and to stir up the conversations. I think the most important thing is to understand that those people who are really in ideological sense, extremists, like really promote ideology of extermination and hate. You know, hate speech today, everything is hate speech, hate speech yeah. but they're really people who are, have crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. And those people who are strategically are extremists, who are proposing violence, terrorism, and so on. They're either, there are only two possibilities. They're either idiots, like 14-year-old boys who have no idea and just want to pose, or they're agents. And both kinds of people are not fit for political activism. So I think it's very important to understand that those people and those online anonymous, hyper-radical, edgy accounts, they are damaging us 
and they are the best tool of our opponents to basically argue for hate speech laws, to argue for repression. That's uh, that's a very important understanding. And for art of the movement, a key step was to always show your face, to always go into the debate with an open face, because if you have to show your face, if you really have to face people, talk to normal people on the street, handing out leaflets, then it's a reality check as your radio and you you really um, become more normal and also adapt your views to normality. And this is where Reality Check Radio and the parent organization Voices for Freedom started was on the streets with leaflets, with banners, specifically around the protest against COVID tyranny a few years ago. So we had a number of Uh, Well, we had the most extreme measures in New Zealand, lockdowns, people were not allowed to gather, do anything, no weddings, no funerals, no churches, you couldn't have, you basically weren't allowed to leave your house unless it was considered to be some kind of essential service like uh, going shopping, if you had to go and buy food, that was about it. All the other shops had to be closed. Then they implemented vaccine passes as well. You couldn't basically leave your house if you didn't get vaccinated. And so all of these forms of repression were used by the previous Labour government. And it was really, the the people who fought back against that were a grassroots activist movement. There were people who got together and did the work that you're talking about here on on this particular issue. Amazing. Like I heard about that, how hard it was in Australia. I didn't know so much about New Zealand, but Austria was also hit very hard. They tried to really have a vaccination law a forced vaccination law in Austria. I think we were the only country and they, they used us yeah. as a testing ground for that. And we also had a huge campaign against that and we were also leading it, the demonstration. So that was a, I think it was a wake up moment for many people because if you see how much they lied and manipulated here, then you are losing, you're losing trust overall in the mainstream media. There's something people did really see, like you say, the media was lying to them, the government was lying to them, and it was obvious to see that they were being lied to. And so then naturally people start asking, okay, well, what else are they lying about? And at, at that point you start to, you do have a bit of a risk there where people start to get into conspiracies, crazy ideas, you know, actually crazy ideas, obviously everything is called a conspiracy, but it becomes really important for people to be, have, be able to have conversations, be able to talk about the issues and get respectable debates and so on. And, and that's really what is driving this movement here. And I think it is setting many different groups of people in New Zealand up for more opportunities. You know, we have a, a different collection of people who have different interests here at Reality Check Radio. And you know, we're able to work together for different goals and be friendly. And I think that's a really nice thing to see because otherwise it's, everybody's just divided by politics. It becomes just people pushing one political issue and, and left-wing, right-wing centrist and so on. And, and in, instead, we're able to simply make the case for the truth and let people hear other points of view that people hear what you have to say here about remigration and maybe talk to other people about for other perspectives on immigration. And then the audience can actually make up their own mind. They don't need a mainstream media, a legacy media that has to filter everything and say, here's the one thing that you're allowed to hear. And you're only, we've decided that this is the safe thing. And this is what everyone has to believe. I couldn't agree more. I think the plurality of ideas and opinions, you know, is very important because then we can filter out bad ones and you have a constant a struggle as well and you constantly need to defend your ideas but what we're seeing right now which is really strange is at this plurality of ideas this public debate is being destroyed and instead we're getting diversity cultural and ethnic diversity which in the end leads to riots gang wars and in the end it leads to a new tribal society 
post-democratic society, if you look at really multi-ethnic, multicultural societies, very often they're not democracies because the elections just become an ethnic headcount, you know, and one tribe is fighting against each other. And I think the basis for to have this plurality of opinions, of ideas and religions is a strong social cohesion, you know, a feeling of a common shared identity. Because if you have this as a basis, then it's okay to really hardly dis to disagree and have debates. But if this common feeling is lost and you don't have this common feeling of a common shared history and identity anymore, which is you want to preserve as identitarians, then democracy isn't possible anymore. And that's how they're actually with demo demography, killing democracy. We now have Muslim parties in, in Germany arising. We have the Muslim ethnic vote in the UK, which is dominating elections already. And uh, I think it's very important if you want to If you want to maintain this personal freedom that libertarians are very often opting for, yeah. we also need to secure our culture and our identity. The social cohesion that you were talking about, it's interesting that the first time I heard this word was several years ago when it was left-wing bureaucrats and professors who had been hired by the government to look into social problems that may be caused in New Zealand. And they started talking about social cohesion and social cohesion was being broken up. And of course, they were break, blaming uh, right-wing people. Right-wing people were to blame for social cohesion. And the way to increase social cohesion is going to be through more diversity. And I thought, this is insane. Uh, and so I started talking about social cohesion. I said, well, I, obviously, we have the solution for more social cohesion, which is that uh, people need to have common ground. They need to have a, a, a shared identity. And that's the only way to generate social cohesion. Exactly. And you know, do you know, are you familiar with the work of Robert D. Putnam? Uh, no, I haven't heard of him before. He's an American sociologist and he's a left-wing guy. And he also wanted to prove that neoliberalism is destroying the social capital. And social capital is this term for social cohesion. He says there's a normal capital and a social capital. And the ca social capital is how people work together when they're carpooling, doing community service. And then he found out in a study that the more ethnic diversity you have, the less social capital. And that's the most important factor. And he was reluctant to even publish this study, but in the end he published it. It created a huge outcry. He does a book, it's called Bowling Alone. And he's shown that the more ethnic diversity you have, the social capital, the mutual trust, all these things are breaking down. You have an increase of corruption, but also loneliness. And I've now just read a better study by 30 different studies about ethnic diversity and um, social trust. And even like in African villages, the more tribes there are in the village, the more likely the village is to have a community uh, well, you know, because it just creates, a, a, there's less social trust, there's less mutual trust. And if you don't have this mutual trust, then you don't invest in projects, in long-term projects. You know, you have to defend yourself. The transaction costs are high. And this is something that has been very clear. And it's really strange that those who know about this, the left-wing scientists, still are pushing for this diversity idea. And I really think at some point they don't want to have strong cohesion. They don't want to have a social trust. They want to have an atomized society of lonely individuals who are sitting at home with the Apple Vision Pro, you know, ordering yeah. Fudura food, yeah, and just live in a little in a little pot, you know. That's what they want. It, it becomes easier to control people if they exactly. are atomized. And then you need more government. That's always the solution. You need more government uh, to control people's lives and to stop, to stop the conflict that the government has created between the people is the thing that the government is now going to stop. And it creates a spiral from, you know, which only creates more and more destruction in society. Absolutely. 
And that's also what the Romans did with the wide and conquer or even the colonial empires in Africa. They always created borders in a way that different tribes would be locked together in one nation state and not one tribe could have the majority there. And this led to constant struggle and it always made them necessary as the peacekeepers, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to keep the peace and to negotiate between these battling tribes. Do you have any advice here, especially a younger nation like New Zealand? We had a basically a founding document. The Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840. So that's mm -hmm. less than 200 years ago. There's a lot of questions here that we have in New Zealand about uh, forming our own identity as a country that's not tied to the colonial homeland of England, that's not tied to our very large neighbor, Australia, because Australia is, is, is a very big center, developing ourselves as our own nation. Obviously, in Austria, you have a very long history, well-developed culture, an old identity that you can tap into. But how do a people develop essentially a fresh identity if they don't have mm -hmm. a long history? Actually, that's a, that's a, um, a big question. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on this subject, but I imagine it to be at the same time challenging, maybe even frightening, but also interesting and, and exciting, you know, to have this new path in front of you. I think that the most important thing for a nation to really become a nation is a real and historic identity that's not only based on abstract principles. I think that's where you see the difference, for example, between a nation like Canada and a nation like Brazil, you know, because these countries also were newly founded at some point, the Southern American countries, but over time, they really developed their own historical identity and mm -hmm. uh, being Brazilian or Chilean or Argentinian or Paraguayan, uh, some friends who also live over there, it really means something in a way, you know, it has a, a concrete meaning and it's not only to to be part of a of a contract or a club with certain set of rules that you can easily leave. So I think if you really want to create a, a stable identity, you have to look for a concrete substance in, in history and not only based on abstract principle. That's my that's my opinion because I think in, in Germany this idea was called the chemical nation, like a nation that's only based on on ideas. It's only a nation of the spirit. I think at some point loses this common threat and this common ground and can be easily overrun by by individual or by tribal group interests. You know, and so I think that would be the the main point to ask yourself: How did we came to be, be become this nation? Also, with the indigenous people who are there, what what would be our place in the world? What what could be our contribution? to the world as a nation. I think that's that would be the, the important questions to ask. But obviously, I'm, I have a complete outsider. Um, the only thing I know about New Zealand is that Lost Rings was was produced there. And this guy, Kim.com, is living in New Zealand. He's an German. I don't know if you heard about him. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. we know Kim.com. Very famous here yeah, in New yeah. Zealand. <laughs> he's, he's also famous here in the Germanosphere because he's actually a German hacker, you know, and yeah. then he fled to New Zealand. Um, yes, so they're still uh, trying to they're trying to extradite him to America for a crime <laughs> against really? uh, Disney. Yes, is oh. is had a very long court case. So the American government wants uh, Kim dot com to stand trial for copyright violations in and America. Do you, do you want him to stay in New Zealand? Well, I I'm I don't mind. I'm happy for him to stay. I know that there are many people who want him to go. That people don't like him, but really, uh, <laughs> he. He started a, a big left-wing party against the government. This was this was 15 years ago. He stopped now. He's very different 15, now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, the, 
I've only seen his recent tweets in the past yes. year, and they, and sometimes they seem very, very, very interesting. Yeah, but, I used um, to not like him, but in the last three, four years, I've started to see his tweets, and I think, oh, he's come around a little corner. I'm happy for him to stay in New Zealand. We'll we'll keep the extradition case going, you know, for the <laughs> next good, 30 good, years. Good. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, La, um, you should invite him to your show, you know, once. Yeah, I should should give it a go. Uh, he's he's yeah. hard to get hold of, I think, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest problems facing our identity as well, I think, is the issue of immigration. So I mentioned the really high rates of immigration that we have. And there's a very large number of people that come into New Zealand and a very large number of people that leave New Zealand. Many New Zealand citizens feel like they have no future here in New Zealand because of the economic situation that you know, we're sort of trying to compete with bigger countries like Australia. And people will see that it's easier to make money overseas. It's, it's more difficult in New Zealand. And immigration makes it more difficult uh, because we basically have a spiraling situation where more immigration makes it more expensive in New Zealand, makes houses more expensive, the cost of living goes up, it puts stresses on our healthcare system. And then people leave because of that and they go overseas. And the government says, people are leaving, we need to bring in more immigrants. And unfortunately, you know, that's a problem that we in New Zealand need to solve, I think, before we can really chart our own path and, and trying to do so in a way that's a little bit independent from Australia and from the United States and from China that you know, have a lot of influence in, in our country. True. You cannot form an identity when you're not a country, but you're a lobby where people are leaving and coming, you know, and you're just like an airport uh, lobby that doesn't work. But with the same issue in Austria and Germany, the elite of the country is fleeing the country because of we're being taxed into oblivion and it's harder and harder to find a school in urban areas where you can send your children to because they're all overrun by Muslim immigration. And so this creates a real, really downward spiral of more migrants coming in a way, uh, becoming a burden for the social system. And then the elite of the country leaving and fleeing the country and going to other nations. So it's very interesting that we have similar issues. We're so far apart, but very similar issues, also caused by mass immigration. And this kind of replacement mass migration from low economic countries is only damaging our societies. This really has to stop. And I think it's it's very important that we break those taboos We have a serious debate about it, and I'm just very convinced that if you have a debate about migration policy without those taboos, these moralistic trauma and these accusations, you know, then in the end, people will understand that we need a different policy. My proposition would be a policy of remigration. Yeah, we have to be able to get over them calling us names and just be able to stick to the truth, and eventually the uh, the names will go away. Have you got any final thoughts to share? And do you have an English-speaking channel or some way that English-speaking people can follow your work? Or is that quite difficult? And perhaps you might recommend someone else you know, in your sphere who works in English. Yeah, I have an uh, English-speaking Telegram channel and Rumble channel. And from time to time, I post some English updates for a small interested niche group. If you want to know something about the situation in Germany, there's a YouTube channel. It's called Red Pill Germany. I once did an interview with him and he's very good. He's summarizing the whole political situation in Germany very well and very to the point. Uh, if you ask me for some last final words and a message, I think it's very important that people who disagree make the disagreement visible because asylum majority that is not active doesn't create anything. And we need to get out of this idea that only political force and value is our vote that we cast under the ballots of you uh, on some years. We are a strong community as patriots, as dissidents. 
we are millions in every country. And if you would organize, if you get active, if you would fund projects like free radios, like patriotic youth centers and movements, then you would also become a cultural force. So that's very important. But people need to just leave the room and stop complaining online and they need to create visible and actual projects. That would be my message to all dissonance and patriots who are listening. Thank you very much. And we'll put some of those links in the uh, replay when the replay of the show goes up on the Reality Check Radio website. Thank you very much. I've been really inspired by your work over the last few years. And it's also been a privilege to do this interview with you for RCR. My wife, Amy, also used to enjoy Brittany's content when she was still posting. So we do both wish you and your family all the best. Thank you for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to, either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057, or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so connect with us today.